in general, we need to be better communicators, and communication is a skill you can never be too good at. Welcome to Improv is No Joke podcast, where it's all about becoming a more effective communicator by embracing the principles of improvisation. I'm your host, Peter Margaritas, the self-proclaimed chief edutainment officer of my business, The Accidental Accountant. My goal is to provide you with thought-provoking interviews with business leaders so you can become an effective improviser, which will lead to building stronger relationships with clients, customers, colleagues, and even your family. So let's start the show. Welcome to episode number 59, and today my guest is Carl Ulrichs, who is making a second appearance on the podcast. Carl is a human capitalist consultant and a far-thinking and future-planning individual. I interviewed Carl back in episode number five last July, where we discussed some of the storms he sees coming on the horizon, particularly where HR and the next generations of employees meet. Even though our current economy is far greater now than it's been in a while, Carl sees quite a few potential problems on the horizons that we need to be better prepared to tackle. We revisit that discussion and then take another look out into the current horizon to see what challenges we will be facing. Before we get to the interview, I'd like to talk about Listen, Learn, and Earn. I've partnered with the Maryland Association of CPAs and the Business Learning Institute to bring an exciting new learning opportunity for accounting professionals to earn CPE credits. You can earn up to one self-study CPE credit for each completed podcast episode purchased for only $29 through the Maryland Association and the Business Learning Institute self-study website. The podcast episodes are mobile-friendly. Open your browser on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. Go to the MACPA BLI self-study account and listen to an episode. Take the review and final exam while you're working out or after listening to an episode on your commute to and from work. It's that easy. While all selected Improv is No Joke podcasts are available on my website, only those purchased through the MACPA BLI self-study website are eligible for CPE self-study credit. You can get detailed instructions by visiting my website at petermargaritas.com and clicking on the graphic, Listen, Learn, and Earn, Improv is No Joke podcast on the homepage. I hope you enjoy this exciting and flexible new way of earning CPE credit. Okay, now let's get to the interview with Carl. Welcome back, Carl. It's great to have you back on the podcast. I can't believe it's been over a year since the last time we talked. And I know that you've just recently returned from the Society for Human Resource Management annual convention. And I'm so looking forward to what storm clouds you see on the horizon because that's where we that's how we started our conversation a year ago on those on those storm clouds the storm and actually if you go back a year well first off thank you for having me back and i'm pleased that uh uh, the statute of limitations has run out on some of what I said. <laughs> but if you go back here and look at what I said, I got it mostly right. I was pleased with that. And I have uncovered a couple of things that I find kind of interesting about the the, the next year. Let's make this an annual thing. Of course. I want to let people know that globally, 
The United States is very competitive in a couple of areas. The big one is productivity. They track how productive we are individually, and compared to the rest of the world, we're killing it. And it's that productivity that's kept our stock market alive, that's kept our commerce going. And the volume of people working is holding steady. The volume of what we're producing continues to climb. That's because we're leveraging technology. That's because we're changing how we do things. And there's a couple of big changes coming on the horizon that might leverage that even further. But the scary thing is going to be it's not applied to every industry. If you're working in the coal industry, it's not so hot. If you're working in natural gas exploration, you are busy. If you're working in a job that could be automated, you need to start looking for a way to get client-facing, customer-facing, because a lot of the mid-level positions, you know, there's the customer-facing stuff, then there's all the middle management, and then there's upper-level We're going to see that middle getting so automated that those positions are going to go away. Yeah. So there's a couple trends that are riding within that. One is that it was interesting at this conference, everybody was rolling their eyes and they are tired of hearing about millennials. They are tired of hearing about generational horse hockey. (laughs) And it's kind of interesting uh, starting to see people putting different ways of of classifying people on the roadmap. For instance, instead of just pigeonholing people based on how old they are, when were they born, people are recognizing that there's lots of different ways to bifurcate a crowd, to, to split a crowd into two. For instance, there's a lot of attention being placed on people who are technically savvy and people who are digital immigrants. Where, where they do tech, but they do it with a heavy accent and they're not comfortable with it. And that's not age-specific. I met several people at this conference who were in their 70s and were fully digital and connected, and people who were in their 30s and were clinging to their Blackberries and hoping they wouldn't have to learn another operating system. So look for... A lot of the generational stuff, To I'm not saying run out of steam. I, I think we're going to see more accurate ways to classify workers based on things other than purely when they were born. And there's a lot of things driving this. One is uh, just the maturity of, of our wisdom, where we had been painting with broad brushstrokes now, We've been through two or three iterations of that, and we're seeing ways that we can classify people that are not just purely age-related. Second, because we had painted with such broad brushstrokes, there's a lot of people who pushed back on that with accuracy and said, hey, you know, I'm not that way. So look for more language about how Groups can be found inside the workforce, and they're going to be groups that are based on diversity and inclusion, where you've had a a common upbringing that does affect that. But also, you know, anybody that's come from a family of two or more, you look around and realize that your brothers and sisters all essentially had the same cultural upbringing that you did. 
But you're so radically different because of the genetics involved, the wiring of the brain, the, 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 the nature versus nurture argument, and that nature has about half, half to do with this. And so a trend that's going to happen is we're going to see new technologies being applied to this in the sense that we're going to see better and more continuous assessment of who we are assessment on the way in in talent management where people are going to get screened and there's going to be pre-hire assessments that help guide us into a better job fit. But then there's also going to be ongoing assessment and coaching that's, that's not the old annual performance review. Within the accounting profession, look at the work that Deloitte has been doing on moving away from annual performance reviews. We're going to see more of this. Yeah. But this requires, oh yeah, but this requires people to be good at coaching and good at listening. Well, good news, most people in accounting and finance are good listeners because they're introverts, but bad news, they don't want to speak up. Bingo. And so that's going to have to change. How am I doing so far? Are these interesting things to you? I don't want to be, I don't want to bore you, oh dearly. Oh, you never bore me, Carl. And and actually, I applaud the fact that we are getting away from age segregation uh, in the generations because I think there's been way too much millennial bashing. And and actually, you addressed this last year uh, about the digital natives and, and the tech savvy individuals. And, and I just said I was at a client yesterday and there was a little bit of millennial bashing going on and I actually used your words and I've been using your words a lot as it relates to this there's really you know we have a lot more in common but where the big differences are and I brought up your point and I got a look of what are you talking about Willis (laughs) (laughs) but after I explained explained it in the way that you put it I saw the aha moment and it was really fun to watch that for the first time, that aha moment. Like, well, you know, you might be right about that. So I, I, I'm glad that you brought it back up uh, to start the podcast because I think it needs to stay in the forefront of people's minds. Well, and these are times where people want things to be simple. I think there's information overload out there, and people just want a simple way to categorize. Don't get fancy with me. And it's a time where I'm pushing back and saying, oh, we all really need to sharpen our critical thinking skills. We need to sharpen our conflict management skills. We need to get better at getting along with each other. Have you been paying attention to Washington, D.C. lately? Uh, Yes, I have been. And actually, I'll even throw in uh, another piece. We also need to have the emotional intelligence aspect of it as well, which Washington doesn't have a lot of that right now. Right. Well, it's simple to to have good critical thinking skills and to have good personal maturity and to have both knowledge and wisdom. And and by the way, those are the ways I describe what do you mean by emotional intelligence? That's what I mean. Critical thinking skills, maturity, wisdom, and having the communication skills to be bilingual to different kinds of people or trilingual. That takes some willingness to be adaptable and flexible, that takes personal maturity. And that's tough to come by these days. One of the things that I am spending my time, I'm getting into junior high schools and I'm volunteering to teach critical thinking, to teach ethics, to teach 
some of these baseline fundamental skills into the 11, 12, 13, 14-year-olds because we have a chance of making a big impact, good positive impact on our nation if we can upskill our young'uns in all of these issues that uh, we're, we're seeing sadly lacking in our leadership today. So how do you teach these critical thinking skills to young adults as well as to older adults? Let's agree we all have six-second attention spans. What did you say? Bingo. (laughs) My finger's on that button, Peter. (laughs) Let me give you the punchline first. Okay. We have to look at how young people want to learn and realize that everybody wants to learn that way. We have to gamify how we teach these core skills. We have to make it engaging and make it competitive and make it a game. So two days ago, I taught critical thinking to a room full of adults. And halfway through it, after giving them the theory, I gave them what is called an inbox exercise, where it's a game where they are handed the contents of a fictitious person's inbox in a crisis in an organization. And this inbox is, I mean, imagine your inbox. I can see it behind you on the table. Just a, just a pile <laughs> of stuff. Some very important. Some is just fluff. They are then given a task. You have an hour. Sort this. Prioritize it. Figure out what the big picture issues are. And in an hour, I want a three-bullet-point list of what you're going to do first, what you're going to do second, what you're going to do third, and why. And to achieve that, you have to use your critical thinking skills. And it's competitive, and I have a big prize here of a uh, – I, I was giving out a nice technology gizmo. And second prize was a set of steak knives. <laughs> and, man, boom, they were on it. This was a game that was competitive, and they all wanted to win the, the little techno gizmo I had. The room got quiet, and the thinking started. And boy, they got, they, I had taught them, I'd given them some little layers of, of wisdom, and now they were practicing it in a game environment that was real. The inbox exercise was real. And it was language that was real. It was a situation that was real. It applied to their lives. Afterwards, in evaluations, they pointed to that game and said, all training should have this. So answer to your question, gamify it. Make it a game. Make it competitive. Get them engaged. And you'll move the needle of learning. So we've been talking about gamification uh, and, and training and development and education for a long time. Listening to how you just described what you did, I think we've been trying to make it harder than it is. I, I think we've been trying to computerize it, and I think we've been trying to— Yeah, this was on paper. Yeah, this, I mean, this is when old school, when simple, but to your point, we don't want complex anymore. We want simple, but we also have to make it interactive and engaging, and I'll take this even to, to, to education right now in the high schools and junior high. We're still teaching the same way we did in the 30s, in the 40s, in the 50s. 1830s, 18. 1840s. There's no, there's very, there's very little gamification in high schools, in junior high, elementary school, but that's how this 
new generation learns. Well, let me give you, can I give you a new, uh, an additional example that will reinforce, it, it will agree with what you just said? I like that then, yes. Okay. <laughs> you like it because it agrees with you. Exactly, because it's all about me, right? Mr. Margaritas, you're part of the problem, <laughs> not part of the solution. We took 15 high school kids from an inner city school and taught them the principles of insurance in 45 minutes. And preparation for being adults, they had to learn what deductibles were, what premiums were, what the concept of risk transfer was, the idea that, that you can join a pool and have people share the risk. And if there's a loss, you're made whole and, and cover it both from a commercial insurance standpoint, from an auto insurance standpoint, and from a health insurance standpoint. And we had 45 minutes to do it. Wow. What we did was we gave them a pile of Monopoly. Each of them got $10,000 in Monopoly money. They got a set of three scenarios. They were given one at a time, and they could make decisions. They had a, a range of decisions. You are a business owner, and you have a convenience store, and you, you can buy insurance for your store. You have three levels you can buy. You can choose to self-insure and take all the risk yourself. You can choose to partially insure and insure just the building, but not the liability if something bad happens. Or you can completely insure. These cost different amounts. If you want to save all your money, you can self-insure and hope nothing happens. See how this works? So they all make their choices. And then we had, you've seen those carnival wheels. You spin them like a Barker wheel. Yeah. It's like Wheel of Fortune. Yeah. Well, I have one. And, and <laughs> so then when everybody committed to their risk decision, uh -huh. we would spin what we called the wheel of misfortune. And half the time, nothing happened. And half the time, bad things happened. And if you chose to self-insure and a bad thing happened, you were bankrupt. And you, you could no longer play the game. You were out. And if you made a proper level of insurance, then you were made whole and you kept your money. You didn't get your premium back, but your losses were covered. So we did that for commercial insurance. We did that for your homeowners. And we did that for health care. Uh, you know, we spun it. Oh, you got a broken leg. At the end of the three spins... Whoever had the most money, who had made the good risk decisions and fortune had smiled, the people with the most money were first in line for the pizza. Ah. Man, they <laughs> got it. No, again, all I had was a carnival wheel and some sheets of paper. Simple is better. I think we have tried to make it a lot harder than it should have been because I, I remember – Probably five or six years ago at the AIC, AICPA level, they put together this task force on learning and they were going to do gamification. And it was this high tech, they, they were looking at computerization and it never went anywhere. Because I, th I think they were making it too, they were making it harder than it really should be. They made it way too complex. It needs to come By down the way, if any of, if, if either of your listeners, my mother and, Right, me, <laughs> yeah. uh, would like to see a short video clip that I shot of the insurance training exercise. 
I shot a video clip. I could email it to you, and you can put it up on your website if you choose. I, I please do that. I'll put it in the show notes. I'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes, and I think I think people would like would like to uh, would like to see that. I mean, it's just it's just me on a, a, a smartphone, but but you do you do wonders on a smartphone. So don't don't sell yourself short on your smartphone. Hey, I'm an artist. Don't you forget. Yes, you. And we'll talk about your book when we close our our, our interview. But let, let, you also mentioned something in this conversation about ethics. Oh, yeah. Have you gamified ethics? That's next. I was thinking of that yesterday. I did an, an eight-hour ethics and industry class. And I gamified it in the sense that we did some case, some case studies. Mm-hmm where I threw out, here's the situation, and threw it open to the class for how do we solve this to trigger a good facilitated discussion. I want to take it to the next level and actually do, uh, I like the wheel of misfortune yeah. concept where we could have a case where people make an ethical decision and then we spin to see what additional, what, what additional events happen that complicate the ethical decision. because. A big thing with ethics is it's never simple. There's always a lot of layers in it where it's not just that you have an idea that somebody's embezzling. It's that the person who you're you're concerned who's doing the double billing is the nephew of the owner that you report to. So that changes the game or that the, you know, that, that you think bribes are being paid, but you're selling into a nation where the ethical standards of bribery are different. Do you want to get your shipping container delivered in Haiti? Because if you're doing it through American standards, it's not going to happen. You see what I'm saying? You know, that, that we can, ethics are so complex. Um, I've been trying to figure out how to gamify it, and I haven't figured it out yet. I, I think you're onto something. My, my question is, can you take real-world events like Wells Fargo, like Theranos, I believe that's how it's pronounced, like uh, insider trading, and, and take those real-life case studies and, and use that as the basis and gamify it? I think so. And also realize that with many ethical situations, what you've got is a mix of somebody having a need and somebody having an opportunity and somebody not being properly trained. And maybe the gamification part of it can be that it, the variables of the opportunity shift where, you know, just a random chance that, um, oh, here's a wallet and it, it has a thousand dollars in it. Suddenly there's an opportunity. And then it also pops up that your child is ill and you have no money for a doctor. Does that change what you do with the wallet? Right. I I used one sort of scenario that you're the CEO of an organization and your senior vice president comes to you and, and you know that your child has, is, 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 is very ill and comes to you and says, I'm out of money. Uh, there's a special treatment that, that they're going to try, but it's going to cost a half a million dollars. Can the business loan it to me? And... And, and is loan in air quotes? No, loan is in, I, I will try to pay it back, but the, I, I need a half a million. But our policy states that our organization does not loan money to its employees. But 
I know you and I know your child and I know that you really need this help. Do I, as an organization, give you this money to help your child or do I stick to policy? And if I do give you this money, what slippery slope does that open up? Oh, yeah. That's a lot of that, a lot of great conversations come out of that because it's to your point. There's many layers in there, and it is it is that is not easy. I like this. I don't think anybody's got uh, the great game of ethics, and we need to do that. I, I think you're right. I think that current ethics training in the accounting profession needs to be more real world. Needs to be more gamified. Needs to be more entertaining and engaging. Exactly. I will give you a quote that was recently given to me. I was getting ready to do a, a ethics pro, half day ethics program for an accounting firm, and I had to explain to the. I went to the partner and explained that you know you've got me here for four hours. However, in CPE time, it's really three and a half. Now I can stay the whole four, but you tell me what you want me to do because I want. I'll make sure that you get your two hundred minutes here, uh, and. His quote to me was, I think my people are more concerned about the hours than the ethics. Wow. He was being transparent. He was. I didn't, I actually, I hopefully I didn't have that, oh crap, look on my face and the other look of shock at the time. Uh, and I, I, I just kind of went, well, I better get ready to start the class. I, I, I didn't know what to, and it just went. Amazing. Uh, exactly. I had something really, I had something really cool happen with my yesterday eight hour class in ethics. There was a it was a, a room full of grizzled veterans who were just there <laughs> to do their expense reports while I was in the front of the room. Oh, and <laughs> and I called him out on that. <laughs> but there was a woman who had just been uh, certified as a CPA. She passed the passed the exam. This was her first ethics training class. OK. That added a new dimension where everybody wanted to, you know, it was like, oh, okay, we've got, we've got a newbie in our midst. What should we tell her? And that was fascinating. That's a, that was an interesting part of the exercise. What did they tell her? It was interesting. It, it, it started slow, but the punchline to what they told her was that these were the most important classes she would ever take. That the real core of the profession was the fact that we as a profession are the flag holders, the the, waiver, the 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 foundation business people for ethics. We are the standard bearers for ethics. And it was really nice to hear that coming from people in different ways. Yeah, that 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 is good. That's a great way to introduce someone to the profession and to the ethics side of it. Yeah. Back to the point of We've got to make it more interesting. We've got to make it more engaging. So, so well, the, and so what I what I also did was I went out to YouTube and found interviews with failed CFOs who had done prison time for crashing their companies. Oh, and played those videos, and then threw it open for discussion of what have we learned. That's that's so. What what see what CFOs did you um, find out on YouTube? Um, the guy that crashed Worldcom, uh, Health Source. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The the guy who worked with Richard Scrushy. And the yeah. interesting thing was, um, the story he told. It was a one hour briefing. We we listened to about thirty minutes of it. Richard Scrushy, the president that got him to do it. Yeah. He did. You know, the CFO did time. Right. The CEO got off. Yeah. 
And it was great because then people got on their Google in the class <laughs> and looked up the CEO's current bio and were incensed that he had written a book and was on the speaking circuit talking about ethics. And this is wrong. But never admitted to anything. Exactly. Wow. I'm, I'm going to find those. But yeah, that's that's another good way to do this is, is to find YouTube. Yeah, real. Yeah. You know, and, and, and uh, also people really respond to video. Yes. Imagine if this podcast showed you in your rumpled blue shirt and <laughs> the wreckage of your office strewn around you. Yes. That that it would add a new layer of, of you have a face for television. I know it's for radio, oh, but thank you. Thank <laughs> hey, can we get uh can we get back to my scary things on the horizon? Yes. What what's scary out there? Well, I wanna I wanna get back to things I learned at uh, the Human Resources Conference that people ought to be at least aware of. We, we covered that uh, age isn't it. We covered that gamification is coming. Uh, we covered that personal development and performance reviews are, are completely shifting in how they're being done. Another big thing that was popping up is big data. With, with the power of algorithms coming and the power of all of this data that we've been gathering, we can now start drilling into it. We're able now to predict what happens next instead of tracking what happened last week. Mm -hmm. And so look for huge amounts. There's new resources out there. Look for huge amounts of new opportunities to use big data to be more effective. Let me give you an example. I stumbled across a company called Syndio, S-Y-N-D dot I-O. You've got an organization. You have a theoretical grid-like organization chart, you know, of little boxes and lines. But that's not the real thing. You use Syndio. Everybody gets a, a quiz on their smartphone. And it says, who are you working with? Who do you talk to in a given week? What you know, and you're, on this project, who's in the project? Who do you talk to in the organization? Who do you interact with? And you 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 enter that data on this mobile app, and Syndio would allow. Let's say you're the manager trying to figure out job assignments and what's up and what's not. Syndio in three dimensions maps the network, the actual network of your organization. All the hidden lines, all the people that like the you didn't know that the guy in charge of the mailroom is also working on two of your more leading projects because they happen to have some technology knowledge because of their role in the mailroom. And you didn't know that. And so the output from Cindio is you get to look at your organization, live data, real data real time, and you can look at it like a nest of people from three dimensions, and you can turn it, and twist it, and figure out, oh, who's important and who isn't. You can figure out who your key employees are. Interesting. Yeah. And it's not, it's not a lot of money, but he, I just wanted to give you that this is an example of uh, a big data application to meet the need of, you know, you're, uh, uh, you've got a 100-person firm, and you wished you could figure out who the most important people are. Well, this would be a quick way to figure out who the most connected ones are and who is being ignored, who's hiding. A lot of times low performers like to get off under a rock and hide. 
this would uncover who's hiding. Would it all, I would assume it also would help in defining who those high performers really are. Yep, or the most valuable performers within the organization. So I'm, I'm trying to get my, my mind wrapped around an app, the concept of basically mapping out my organizational chart in a way that I could look on my smartphone and be able to look at that data and, and make decisions from it from an organization standpoint. Yeah, go look at that one. I mean, it's, it's just one example, synd.io. It's just a quick example of how big data could be used because I want everybody to be comfortable that big data, good news, it's a lot of information. Bad news, it's a lot of information. And I think these people uh, have done a good job of making a lot of data simple. So at the conference, because if I'm thinking about the timing of it, had Amazon announced its uh, desire to purchase Whole Foods at the time you were at the conference? Yes. Oh was, yeah. Was there any? What was the scuttlebutt going on about that? Or was there any scuttlebutt going on about that? Well, people were people were puzzled by it. I mean, people are to the point where they just kind of shrug and say, "Oh, okay." If you ask, I have asked. If you ask in your circles, how many people have their groceries delivered? I'm getting ten to twenty percent of my friends are saying yes, and it's interesting. Some of the unintended outcomes from that. They are reporting that their pantry is filled with healthier foods now because they're not making impulse buys of, hey, look at this, uh, Keebler cookies are two for one. No, they're, they're sticking to their list and they're buying the avocados and the salads and the, uh, you know, it's producing a healthier product mix. Yeah, and I think what, either yesterday or today, I think Blue Apron uh, it was one of these delivery grocery type of things went public, but back to big data and, and Amazon and Whole Foods. That one they haven't announced what they're going to do, which is you know, everybody, everybody's buzzing around. But when I think of big data, I think you know I, what's Amazon. Will, will there still be brick and mortar grocery stores? However, there'll be less people who are working there other than maybe who's stocking the shelves but when you pick up a loaf of bread or you pick something up there's some data attached to that to your profile and they're just continually gathering your shopping habits oh they've already i mean uh one of my grocery clients for instance they they know based on their big data that if an unaccompanied male comes into their store after noon on Friday and before midnight on Friday, and they purchase diapers, there's a high likelihood they will also purchase what? Wipes? Beer. <laughs> I was going to say it, but I didn't want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm reading your mind. Yeah. No, you were thinking, yeah. <laughs> they got the kids for the weekend. Oh, I didn't. Okay. So therefore, the grocery store sat uh, Friday at noon builds an end cap of what in the diaper aisle? Beer. Yes. And they strike that Friday at midnight and replace it with hand lotion because the Saturday shopper who's buying diapers is the mom. Interesting. I mean, retail has, has been working on this for decades. But, I mean, as I'm going through my local grocery store, there, I, there are 
people with the grocery store logo on their shirts pushing carts through with an iPad checking off and picking for people who are either going to pull up front and grab it or it's going to get delivered to them. You know, this is this is this is changing our world. Very much so in, in so many different ways. As, as someone once said, be careful what you Google because you're going to get those re-ads a lot. So if you're, out, if you're out on Amazon and you're surfing for diapers. Yeah, I, I needed a specific computer part about a month ago and Googled that part just to see where I could buy it. It's been haunting me ever since. Yeah. The one thing that all people need to be doing is listen to their high-performing employees. I keep getting this from all of my clients. I keep getting this from all of my friends who are high performers who are frustrated. They have a tenuous relationship. Right now, high performers can get a job in two weeks and not have to update their resume because of LinkedIn. It's interesting that the management style of high performers has been incorrect in the last four to five years where supervisors and managers have been misinterpreting their role and have been spending their time with the low performers trying to get them upskilled and have been leaving high performers alone. They have been letting them, they've not been wanting to micromanage them, they say. They've been, they're doing fine. Let's just give them some room. They're doing great. Well, they're forgetting that high performers have a real hunger for a good relationship with their boss. And if you want to take one thing away from an HR thing, this is kind of an HR topic today. Uh, the one thing that people need to do in this year to overcome all of the storm clouds on the horizon, what you have to do is keep your good people. And the one silver bullet thing you can do right now to keep your good people is to appear to listen to them, to know who they are, to know if they're a cat person or a dog person or a Chevy person or a Ford person and, and know what their goals are and that they want to become a programmer and that you can help them with that. Without that relationship, in the next year, you're going to lose your good people. So uh, there's an excellent book out there. Susan Cain wrote it called Quiet, and it focuses on the introverted leadership style and the power of listening. I'm an extrovert. I hate listening. That's why I'm so focused on this. I've known you. I've known you for a while, so I, I would say I, I don't think that you hate listening. I, I think you, I always thought that you're a good listener. No, no, no. I have learned to appear to listen. Oh, okay. I have two modes. I'm either talking or I'm waiting for you to stop. Did you notice at the start of this podcast, <laughs> I did like an uninterrupted 15 minute monologue where I barely breathe. I know. I and did. Then see I that. realized. Wait a minute. Hold it. Peter's out there, and I said, "So, <laughs> is there anything you'd like to add?" That's the extrovert. That's the extroverted style. But I, we all need to be better listeners. I, 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 I think listening is probably it's a skill that that needs to be redeveloped again. In general, we need to be better communicators, and communication is a skill you can never be too good at. Well, as I like to say, they call it a soft skill, but it's awful hard to master. Ha ha ha! Snort, snort, exactly. So pay attention to your high performers. But from an HR perspective, answer this question for me. If we're supposed to be paying attention to our high performers, and we, but we're paying more attention to the low performers, really those low performers should be out the door, correct? They should be... Well, or at least in a better seat on the train. Like in the back of the train or... or... Well, or a job that fits them. 
because they might not be in they the might right be job. Performer because they're they're not they're they're not a fit for their job. For their job, they need to be doing something else. But why do we, from an HR perspective, why do we hire fast and fire slow when it should be the other way around? Because we aren't trained well in hiring. Because we aren't comfortable with it. We just want to get the warm body in there so we can get back to our real job. It, most organizations don't have somebody dedicated to hiring. It's managers stepping in to do it, and they're not trained to do it. They don't like to do it. They want to get back to the real job. And they're just not good at it. Not good at it, no. And, and nobody's, well, some are really good at it, but most people are uncomfortable having to let somebody go. The failure rate, of hiring, you can set aside all the fancy interviewing and just do a coin flip and be statistically better. Than <laughs> and that's coming from a human resource professional. Just oh, flip yeah. a coin. Hey, next next time you get somebody stand you up and you want a podcast, let's talk about hiring. Okay. I'm in. I will have you back in a heartbeat because that, that would be a fun conversation on just hiring. No, there's whole new things going on in that. Yes, I, I before we, I want you to tell tell people what you did. Uh, I've got a copy of it. Thank you so very much. You are. It's rare. I. It is. It really is rare. I love it. My wife is going. That's Carl. I've never met him, but <laughs> Carl. And I went. Yeah. And, and that picture that you took when I was in Indy. Uh, the reflection. Yeah. The reflection. She goes. Yeah. He's. What? She can't figure you out, which is fun to watch. It's the therapy talking. <laughs> Simply, let me jump to the punchline and work backwards from there. A class project of a publishing and literature senior class at Ball State University hand produced a beautiful art book, a coffee table book of photographs and poetry themed on the loneliness of business travel. Not the pictures of the destination, but pictures of being in transit. Because as a business consultant, I was spending time in airports and shuttle buses and hotel lobbies and hotel rooms. And so, you know, we're all observant of the world around us. And I have always had a camera and a pen. And so I gave myself the assignment to document the world of business travel and as this book shows, uh, the title of the book is called Spaces Between Places. Business travel is lonely, that, that there's crowds of people all traveling alone. And the message is that, you know, in all of this dehumanizing uh, environment of shuttle buses and hotel rooms and, and hotel lobbies and, and airport lobbies, that we all really fight to stay human. And... It's 100 pictures. It's about 20 haiku. Uh, for those of you, uh, haiku is a non-rhyming form of Japanese poetry with a structure of five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables. Here's the most recent one that I wrote. Anxious upgrade line. All are platinum status. So nobody is. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah. Anyway, it'll get published in... More accessible form at the moment. The class only made 60 copies. One was given to Mr. Margaritas. Um, but everybody who's read it loves it, so I'm going to try and uh, build a, a more accessible version of it and get it out there. The website will be spacesbetweenplaces.net, and uh, I will let you know. So that was that.
That and, and and they hand bound this. Oh, it's handmade. Uh, the one you have is a handmade book. Yeah, it, it is. It is very very impressive. And you've been sending haikus out to a group of us forever. I'm here to entertain you. People. Well, you're entertaining me, and I actually over the last few days you've been entertaining Pam Devine as well because she's been the kick, <laughs> getting a kick out of some of the stuff that you've been texting Jennifer and I and, and well, her. You can't make stuff up. I mean, last night <laughs> flying out of Minneapolis, I was. Uh, 56th on the upgrade line for first class, and they had 12 seats. You just can't make this stuff up. No, you, you just you, you just can't. So I just made my own my, back in back in steerage. I made my own first class experience. Well, you've inspired me to do more with my iPhone when I travel, and a lot of different photographs that I, I've beginning to take because you've kind of inspired that creativity. So I thank you very much. And I know you got to go. I thank you for take. I thank you for taking time out of your busy day. I would love, uh, and for both of our listeners, um, thank you for joining today. (laughs) And uh, I look forward to returning with more observations from the front. Exactly. And the next time it's going to be on hiring. So thank you very much, Carl. Greatly appreciate it. And uh, I, we will be talking soon. Great. Bye everybody. I would like to thank Carl again for being a guest today and sharing his visionary outlook on the workplace and providing us with valuable information to help us manage this uncertainty. I'd like to talk about listen, learn, and earn. I've partnered with the Maryland Association of CPAs and the Business Learning Institute to bring an exciting new learning opportunity for accounting professionals to earn CPE credits. You can earn up to one self-study CPE credit for each completed podcast episode purchased for only $29 through the Maryland Association and the Business Learning Institute self-study website. The podcast episodes are mobile-friendly. Open your browser on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. Go to the MACPA BLI self-study account and listen to an episode. Take the review and final exam while you're working out or after listening to an episode on your commute to and from work. It's that easy. While all selected Improv is No Joke podcasts are available on my website, only those purchased through the MACPA BLI self-study website are eligible for CPE self-study credit. You can get detailed instructions by visiting my website at petermargaritas.com and clicking on the graphic, Listen, Learn, and Earn, Improv is No Joke podcast on the homepage. I hope you enjoy this exciting and flexible new way of earning CPE credit. Remember, you can subscribe to my podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you'd like to purchase a personalized signed copy of my book, Improv is no joke. Using improvisation to create positive results in leadership and life for $14.99 and the shipping is free. Please go to my website and you'll see the available now on my homepage. Just click it and go to the shopping cart. In addition, you can download Improv is no joke audiobook for $14.99 so you can listen on the go. You can follow me on social media. You can find me on Facebook by searching The Accidental Accountant. On Twitter, my Twitter handle is at pmargaritas. Connect with me on LinkedIn by searching my name, Peter Margaritas, and on Instagram by searching pmargaritas. In episode 60, I interviewed Tom Hood, who is the CEO of the Maryland Association of CPAs, and we take a future-ready look at the accounting profession. Thank you again for listening. 
And remember to leave a review of the podcast on iTunes. I would greatly appreciate your support. Remember to use the principles of improvisation to help you better connect and communicate with those in your organization. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.